My number one album. Big shocker to me. Also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swiftie. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Well, just is that like it's a perfect album say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks so very much for joining me. This week, this week, I had a chat with filmmaker Todd Vareau about his love for literary legend and master of horror, Stephen King, German filmmaker, actor, playwright, theater director, composer, cinematographer, editor, and essayist, Rainer Werner Fassbender, and... Artist, director, and producer Andy Warhol. An episode full of heavy hitters, wouldn't you say? But first, a quick production note before we dive in any deeper. This is the last Spark Parade episode of 2019. We made it, kids! This episode also serves as an end to what I'm going to call season one. I'm going to take a nice, relaxing, festive break, and I'll be back in mid-January with a slew of new episodes and lots of other exciting shit for season two. This year has been so amazing for me, and I absolutely fucking love working on this show, so thank you very much for listening. I can't wait for all of the exciting stuff I'm cooking up for you in 2020, and I hope you're excited too. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let's talk a little bit about artistic universe building. What the fuck does that mean, Adam? Well, it means a lot of different things, and I think the three artists I discussed with Todd represent different versions of it. Stephen King has built a literary universe, a complex web of characters and stories and places that is absolutely mind-boggling in its scope. I've read almost everything he's ever written, and there's a particular thrill that comes with identifying the subtle or totally overt connections between his books. With Fassbender, his creative universe was built through a community. He told lots of different kinds of stories, but he worked very closely with the same group of people over and over. Part of that was having an established working method and wanting to surround himself with people who understood it, but he also came from a theater background, and the idea of having repertory players appealed to him, even in his films. And then there are artists like Andy Warhol who combine those two philosophies. He had a wide-ranging body of work that spanned several different media, but with strong thematic connective tissue running throughout all of it. In addition to that, he surrounded himself with a group of muses and collaborators, people he could really rely on, who understood his methods and practices, but also people who were a part of the work itself. People who appeared in his projects again and again, becoming part of this all-encompassing structure that included all of the work he created. When artists create vast artistic communities or incorporate recurring elements into their work, each participant each work, each 
piece becomes a part of a greater whole. You can look at their work on an individual level and examine each project separately, but I love being able to take a macroscopic view to see how the entire body of work can serve as a giant cohesive whole. It's like a family tree, the sum total of their entire artistic output with dozens of tiny connections gluing the individual parts together. Obviously, universe building isn't a requirement for making great art, but I love experiencing these massive projects and seeing how everything fits together. I'll always find the sheer scope and scale and planning involved in these mammoth career-spanning mega projects to be truly awe-inspiring. Okay, good enough. Have I talked your ears off? No, I haven't. You're ready for more. So here it comes. It is time for my chat with Todd Vero about Stephen King, Rainer Werner Fassbender, and Andy Warhol. Um, why don't we start with Stephen King? Okay. You're from Maine, which is where Stephen King is from. And yes, from Bangor, Maine. Yes. and So you, you grew up in Bangor? I grew up. Actually, in Brewer, Maine, which is right across the river from Bangor, they're you know sort of connected. Yes, yeah. so that's a an extremely Stephen King centric place. Yes. Do you remember like getting interested in Stephen King's work, or did somebody turn you onto it? Did you find it yourself? Well, I mean, Bangor is a really small town, so mm -hmm. I mean, everybody knew Stephen King and knew his books, and you know, all of the books are based on things that happen in Bangor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we all knew those things that happened. So I think I first became aware, well, really aware when I read The Shining. That was the first book I read that he wrote. And I remember when the movie was coming out, that was really exciting because the TV ads were just shots going down the maze. And it was, you know, you think about TV ads today for movies and it's like the whole movie in 30 seconds. But mm -hmm. back then... You know, it was just like one weird image. And you're like, what the hell was that? Right, right. And I remember seeing that and just like, I have to see this movie. I have to see this movie. So I had to sneak into it because I was too young to go to an R-rated <laughs> movie. And you know, from then on, I was a really big fan. I have talked to people about that recently. The modern movie trailers uh -huh. not only needing to totally encapsulate what is going to happen and if not give away the entire plot then give away significant portions of it but like having a teaser for the trailer yeah. there's like this thing of having like a five second mini trailer before the trailer starts because people's attention spans are so short <laughs> that it's like you need to have a kind of business card version first and then people might stick around if they see the like three second version Ugh, it's depressing but yeah, like, it's really i mean it's really kind of off-putting because it, there's a desperation to it like mm -hmm. here let, let us show you the entire movie so maybe you'll hopefully come see it but back then you know it was like let's just show you this weird image like you know when alien when I remember the trailer for Alien 2 was just a shot of this egg cracking mm -hmm. for 30 mm -hmm. seconds. And that was it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, let's show you this weird image. And, you know, either you'll want to come see the movie or not. We don't really give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's something to be said about mystery and yeah. leaving things open so that people, you know, piquing someone's interest and then hoping that they'll come based on just the suggestion of what you've got to offer. And exactly. I think, you know, Kubrick. Uh, definitely was good at kind of giving these tiny sort of abstract tastes of what he had on offer. And uh, yeah, I can imagine that being really exciting. But other, other than that, um, you know, I, I went to high school with 
the girl who started the actual pet cemetery. So I knew her <laughs> and I knew the pet cemetery. And um, I, my high school that I went to was John Bapp's Memorial High School, where Tabitha King, Stephen King's wife, went to high school. And that's Carrie was sort of based on her high school experiences there. Mm. So <laughs> that was, uh, you know... A really creepy kind of high school. Like someone was always shooting themselves in the bathroom or hanging themselves. A lot of weird stuff happened there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can only imagine like having Stephen King has built this vast universe of characters and plots and everything kind of being tied together in this enormous web of stuff coming from his mind. And to have so much of that stuff referencing things that have happened in the place where you grew up or, mm-hmm. you know, referencing real locations or whatever. In my mind, I used to like when I was little, I used to freak myself out at my school, the music music teacher would tell us scary stories sometimes and I would walk past the school if he told a story about like something creepy happening in the school it would you know make my imagination run wild and I think that it was real so having these like pretty heavy horrific um, horror stories set in a kind of fictionalized version of your town is uh, pretty intense (laughs) yeah I mean and it really because you know all these things that happen so you know all the references you know all the people that he's talking about so it really sparked your imagination too, because he, you know, obviously took things in different directions and elaborated on things and invented the, a lot of things. So that was really inspiration to inspirational to me, you know, as a budding filmmaker or actor or whatever I was back in the early seventies. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it was because at that, you know, you forget too back in the. 70s and early 80s, you know, there was no internet. We didn't even have cable TV. So, you know, basically Bangor is a small town surrounded 100 miles on every side by nothing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were really isolated. So that was really our only source of entertainment and uh, imagination was Stephen King stories and just, you know, stuff you heard there. Yeah, yeah. And like like you said, that idea of using that as a a bit of a template for your future endeavors and saying like using the world around you, using your life experience and kind of fictionalizing it, embellishing it, but really being able to incorporate your own life into your work or, Mm -hmm. you know, your version of the world around you. That's pretty cool. Do you have uh, favorite books of his, things that have really stuck out for you? Well, obviously The Shining was a big big one. I mean, I really liked The Stand a lot mm-hmm. when I read that. Yeah. And um, Different Seasons, that collection yeah, of yeah, short yeah. stories is really good. It's funny, um, there was a, a book called Rose Matter that I really liked. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I got in touch with Stephen King because I, w- I wanted to make it into a movie. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually sent me a really nice note saying, you know, that he that mo- that book is really close to his heart and he doesn't want to make it into a movie ever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was kind of good. So it wasn't it was a rejection, but not really a personal rejection. Yeah, because um, he did, actually did this really cool. I think he's still doing it. Actually, Maybe not. But he used to do this thing where um, he would give independent filmmakers or students the rights to one of his books to make into a movie for mm-hmm. a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the condition was that they couldn't ever release it. Mm. You know, it was just for them to make a movie. And I think that's uh, Frank Darabont. Uh, he actually did one of those $1 movies and, oh. and then went on to do um, Shawshank Redemption yeah. after that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. th- 
and I and they used to show them on TV actually on 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 public on PBS in Maine because you know they they didn't get any money for it but they'd show them so I, I watched a few of those and they're actually pretty good like mm-hmm. weird like experimental video things based on his books yeah it does it, it seems like he is very interested in supporting other artists and also like he finds people who adapt his work that he likes what they do and then he keeps letting them do more i mean you know mike flanagan now with yeah. uh, is the obviously the most recent example but yeah uh there is going to be a new tv version of the stand coming soon i know um, and i know that, i'm very excited about yeah, that yeah yeah <laughs> uh, something with a probably a bigger budget than the 90s version and oh, i did i did actually enjoy the 90s version i mean i think it was a bit on the cheesy side mm-hmm. but but you know it was enjoyable yeah i just i think It'll be nice to see a version that's freed up in terms of like people being able to swear and having yeah. sex and <laughs> violence and all of the things that you can't have on uh, broadcast television. Um, so do you find yourself still, do you like read his books regularly now or do you, have you kind of uh, fallen actually, off of it? <laughs> I've fallen off a bit. I mean, yeah. there's there's so much. I mean, we got we got his new book, The Institute, mm-hmm. and it's very thick. You know? Yeah, so it's hard to hard to find the time to read them. Yeah, um, he's in. I mean, uh, I think a theme of all of the people we're going to talk about today is a a never ending output. Um, very prolific artists. Yes, and you know he is. I, I read something, I think it wasn't The Onion, but some other kind of parody website saying that Stephen King wrote the next Game of Thrones book just for fun <laughs> in, over a weekend. Um, um, he was like, I was bored of waiting for it to come out, so I just did it. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, I can kind of imagine that happening. It's like at least a book a year, and it's not 100 pages, it's 800. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So he he really does not ever give up or stop he's it seems like he is someone who really thrives working yeah and that's i mean that's really inspirational to me you know because you know when he was starting out it was no money involved he would just write every day and, mm-hmm. and he can just continues to do that yeah it's hard it's hard getting up early in the morning though and writing stuff <laughs> yeah yeah i don't that's a, that's a real i really admire his discipline right and especially for someone who has nothing to prove you know he has this absolutely mind-bogglingly enormous body of work and his place in literary history is cemented there's no way that anybody is going to forget about him he is you know a a permanent part of uh international culture but he still it's just you know he i'm uh, projecting this onto him but he seems to love it and you know it's it's what he lives for it's what he wants to do so you know i'm sure getting money for it is nice as well but um yeah uh yeah it seems like he's he's really invested in just creating um which is pretty admirable um he's been at it for like probably yeah. pushing 60 years now um, quite a long time yeah <laughs> maybe not 60 he's 72 i think so uh, yeah. i don't think he started writing books when he was 12 but um, yeah, uh, right. Just in the interest of keeping things brisk and light, skating along uh-huh. through through all of the quite in-depth topics we have to discuss, why don't we have a little chat about Fassbender? Okay. I first discovered 
Fassbender's movies when I was in college, actually, when I was going to Rhode Island School of Design. Um, Brown University had a retrospective of his films. And I remember me and uh, my friend Sarah just went to everything. And often we were the only people there and we just became obsessed and just watched every single film that they showed. Mm. (laughs) And I just loved them so much. I just loved his sense of humor, his sense of melodrama that's not really melodrama. It's it's real drama, but heightened Mm -hmm. because of the situation or the people and just, you know, using the same actors and just, you know, the sense of fun. They were all, you could sense, you could sense the fun they were all having making them and the, the efficiency and the speed, but also the artistry. I mean, everything about them. I just loved them so much. Um, and again, you know, his prolificness and his, how from movie to movie, he would change styles and just try different things. And, you know, what the hell, why not? You know, that whole attitude I really loved. Right. And I'm cheating and looking things up here, but uh, yeah, 44 films yeah. Uh, and television dramas in 15 years. Yeah. Writing plays as well, directing plays, sometimes doing these things at the same time. Acting as well. Right. And yeah, just uh, the there are few filmmakers, few few artists in the world who I think can achieve that level of output that level of control and really doing things on their own term and it's it's still absolutely breathtaking to think about somebody you know pushing themselves that hard and and uh achieving that much in such a short period of time i mean Mm -hmm. in some respects i think you know there's a pretty direct connection that uh that intensity um was one of the things that uh, led to his death as well. You know, yes. he, uh, he was doing a lot of drugs to try and kind of keep up with the demands of that schedule. So, you know, it's the, the way that his life ended was horrific and, and tragic, but the having this enormous body of work left behind for someone who died so young and um, was only really active for, you know, a, a decade and a half. It's, uh, it's really incredible. And it, you know, it, uh, amazing to have all of that work to process and to enjoy, even though he's he's uh, he's no no longer with us. Do you have f- favorite films of his? I do. Yeah, um, I really like in the in a year of thirteen moons. It's just you know a really that that was one of the first ones I saw, and that really blew my mind. And at Fox and his friends, I you know just adore his performance and just the whole movie it's just so bitter and but at the same time so sad mm. um, some other ones like satan's brew is just like a crazy <laughs> crazy film the bitter tears of petra von kant mm. just you know the fact that it's all set in one room mm-hmm. and and just the managed to do so much with that the cinematography michael Bauhaus, it's just amazing in that film uh, you know, you just could go on and on. Uh, Love is colder than death. Uh, that supermarket scene where they're just walking through the supermarket. I just mm. love that scene. Well, there's a movie about his filmmaking. It's, it's really insider and really funny and really drab. And just shows like the whole time they're basically just waiting around for someone to show up with money so they could continue shooting. So it's just, like, <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. But just... Hearing that list and thinking that another thing that's really striking is having somebody who 
was making two, three, four films a year, you know, just like really pushing himself, never stopping, you would expect that the quality would maybe be variable. And, you know, he's made, he made so many films that were incredible. Um, And I think that's really remarkable too, that sometimes when you have people who strive to just put out as much work as possible, that the the quality can suffer if the goal is really just to be prolific and not to Mm -hmm. worry as much about what you're putting out or, um, you know, just move from project to project and pump them out and hope that some of them are good enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And he seemed to have the ability to really focus and create these things that were memorable and worthy of people's attention, even though they were just being pumped out. It was like, you know, not quite an assembly line, but really, yeah, just a a very aggressive schedule. And I think his personal relationships suffered a bit from that uh, level of intensity and probably his personal relationships were kind of given short shrift, uh, at least in comparison to his dedication to his work. Yeah. And I think you know, that's obviously inspiring to me. Um, but I, I think with him, what he was doing was, you know, he he wanted to make, get a film made. And then when he was not even finished with it yet, he's already thinking about the next project and what can I do different and what can I do better? I mean, he was constantly trying to improve himself or tried new things. So I think in a way it kind of was like an assembly line because he would have the next thing, be working on the next thing as he's finishing the last thing and and working on the thing after that at the same time. So Mm -hmm. that to me is really inspirational because I think like with Stephen King, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of universe that he created and within that universe he knew where to go and what the next thing was going to be yeah um and with both of them my my impression um without you know getting inside of their heads is that they both just had these busy brains with all of these stories inside of them that just needed to get out yeah and that they're the kind of people who have the ability to translate that impulse into amazing classic quality work that people will remember for generations um and people like that don't come along very often yeah yeah well, uh, how about can you tell me a little bit about how his queer sensibility uh, affected your relationship with him or if it did at all i'm projecting <laughs> uh, yeah um yeah. definitely definitely his sense of drama and of melodrama and i know he was obsessed with douglas sirk and um I, but i think he took i think he was obsessed with douglas with the the drama behind Douglas Sirk's characters, and he sort of heightened them and and made them much better. Because I mean, I, I for the life of me, I can't get through a Douglas Sirk movie. I just find them so artificial, and I, I don't get. I just don't get them. And, but I think he saw something in them that, and he brought something better out of them. And I don't want to say camp because I hate the word camp. I hate the way it's used to sort of dismiss gay artwork as, mm-hmm. um, you know, not serious because camp things are very serious. And uh, I, I think that's what he did. He sort of saw everything from a queer perspective. So it added something. It added a, a tension, a sense of drama, fashion and clothes and makeup. And, you know, mm-hmm. Just, you know, this heightened aesthetic that is just, you know, really appealing to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess... And to other queer people, I think. I mean, yeah. It's a queer aesthetic. Yeah, of course. Um, and I think there were, like, the tendrils of that 
aesthetic, that that mindset were infused into everything that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, you know, towards the end of his career, obviously there are more explicitly gay, you know, having like gay characters in films. Do, do you have, do you respond differently to, to those than you have to the ones that are less explicitly gay? I mean, do you have a, a different relationship with those movies? Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because they feel like they're much more real, real, mm-hmm. You know, like Fox and his friends, all the characters seem very realistic. And even Petra von Kant, you know, she's she's a very over-the-top character, but she still feels like a real character. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with a, lo- a lot of his straighter movies, uh, like The Marriage of Maria Braun, the characters feel much more like artificial and constructs of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, even Quirrell, which, mm-hmm. you know, is over the top and bizarre and you know really sort of from left field as far as his work goes yeah still has a sort of real aesthetic to it in a weird way mm-hmm. and the characters still feel like real people yeah and i wonder if you know i i think his sexual identity was pretty complicated or conflicted yes. and you know he was somebody who for all intents and purposes was gay but wasn't totally comfortable with it and kind of idealized heterosexual, heteronormative relationships and kind of wanted to be married to a woman but didn't necessarily want to have sex with a woman. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that had something to do with the the differences there, that it's like movies that have more straight characters, straight relationships, and are a bit more, you know, literally and figuratively yeah. straight, um, yeah. were, were a bit uh, less, it felt like there was less realism there because it was a reflection yeah. of, you know, who he was. Yeah, I think he was he was obsessed with women and obsessed especially with women in films. Mm-hmm. So the actresses he surrounded himself with, he worshipped them, but also tortured them but i think gay men and gay characters he identified with Mm -hmm. um so that's why they're more real i think yeah 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 that all makes sense cool uh well speaking of uh assembly lines yes um we could talk about a literal one with andy warhol Uh, so yeah what do you have memories of discovering his work? I do. I mean, uh, for me, it was less his work at first, more his person. Um, because, you know, growing up in, in Bangor, you know, without the internet, without cable TV <laughs> yes. and all that, I would go to the bookstore and get the Village Voice every week because you could buy it at the newsstand. Mm. And I would just read it cover to cover every week. Um, and especially, you know, the, the stuff about what was happening in New York and about Andy Warhol and also about, you know, the porn theaters and, you know, gay things that were happening there. So that was sort of my entry into the Warhol world. And then, you know, I discovered the art along the way. And, you know, but when I went to art school, that's when I discovered the films, Mm -hmm. which I hadn't discovered before and just became obsessed with those, the films, Um, you know, the films that he made, himself and mm-hmm. the films he made with Paul Morrissey and just all of them. Um, just the fact that, again, sort of like Fastbinder, um, he had a group of actors, friends that he used from movie to movie. And, you know, they were just churning them out and just 
coming up with an idea, let's film it. And there's just that freshness about it and that sort of spontaneity and that sort of messiness, you know, mm-hmm. just turning the camera on and seeing what happens. And okay, that's what happened. That's the movie. You know, right. not, no, no planning. And I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a joke because, you know, that's part of his persona is that, you know, everything was by accident or whatever, but it wasn't really. I mean, mm-hmm. he was planning all this stuff out. He had, you know, his mind was very active and he was thinking about all of these things from beginning to end. But that's, you know, definitely that's was And the, he left stuff to the imagination. You know, if you think of Blowjob where it's just, a, you know, a shot of a guy's face and the title is Blowjob, mm-hmm. so you know what's happening, but you don't see anything except the guy's face. And it just stuff like that is just so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. And, you know, I, I became obsessed with him when I was going to RISD, going to art school. Um, and it's funny because uh, one of his... The guy that was uh, doing his MTV TV show, Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes, mm. went to RISD and he came back to sort of talk to us film students and he saw my student work and he asked me to work for him. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to gonna work for Andy Warhol. Mm. Then, of course, he died <laughs> right before that. So Ugh. I never got to meet him. But yeah. I did you know, work at the factory when I first moved to New York, mm. which was kind of chaotic they called it the morgue then because you know he was dead and there was a lot of sort of infighting and stuff with the estate and the Warhol Foundation so it was kind of a nightmare actually oh no so I didn't get to meet him yeah but still totally amazing to uh have the experience of of working in the factory yeah Um, and that that was you know so he was my entry into New York I had never been to New York before that mm. So that was he. He got me to New York, yeah. basically, yeah. even though he's dead. That's uh, that's pretty incredible. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, the stuff you were saying about his persona as well—that it was like his whole career was kind of, um, or at least the way I think of it—is like an art project in and of itself, oh, yeah. and he was a part of it. You know, the whole the way he dressed, the way he spoke, the way he. Uh, his mannerisms, everything felt like planned and calculated, but it expressed in a way that could be passed off as like, no, this is just casually me and I'm not thinking about anything. And these ideas just drift out of me. And again, I don't, I don't do anything. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. right. The, but the blaseness. I mean, he, uh, you know, at some point along the way, he decided that's what that's what the world needs. Like it doesn't need the, an artist talking bullshit about what their work is. It just needs someone who's doesn't care. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the method of production, which was like a commentary on what art means and how it should be accessed and produced. And um, yeah, ev- everything meant something. And as with the other two people we've discussed in a different way, having this universe that he built, that it was like there were, were connections mm-hmm. between the films, his public persona, his style, his uh, paintings, his sculptures, everything all kind of fits into this broader universe. This um, umbrella falls over everything that he, uh, he he created. And that includes also just like, you know, his personal life and his, yeah. the way that he, uh, the things that he did for fun, you know, just, uh, you know, thinking about him being at Studio 54 and things like that, that all of that connected and it was all like everything that he did was art. And yeah, I find that really amazing. And I think that's true of all three of them, really. Mm, I mm -hmm. mean, 
I think, you know, that's something that's inspirational to me is the fact that they were all so dedicated to their art and still, you know, with Stephen is still dedicated to it that, you know, it's, it's encompasses their entire life. Mm-hmm. It's not just what they do because they want to do it. It's what they have to do. Right. Right. And also with Warhol building this kind of artistic society, having, you know, not just the factory, but all of the actors who he employed, all of the, you know, kind of people who were on the periphery of um, what, what he was doing, that it was like, everything's connected. All of these people serve a purpose. Everyone is part of this organism. Um, And uh, yeah, and he was really invested in, you know, I think there was some self-interest in it as well, but finding people, friends of his, other talented people, and collaborating with them, boosting their careers. I mean, you know, the Velvet Underground, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all of these people who may or may not have needed his help, but who definitely um, their image was shaped by their experience of, of knowing him. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, he did his commercial work, but that was just, to, you know, that, something that I didn't really care about. It was mm-hmm. what he cared about was you know, the films and the scene and the, all the other stuff that didn't make money. Yeah. So the, the, the work that he, the portraits and stuff like that, that he did for money was just to be able to do the stuff that he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and that's inspirational too. I think you, at some, you have as an, as an artist or filmmaker or whatever you consider yourself, you have to find a balance where you can do what you really want to do and then do something to support yourself and they're often not the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's okay. I mean, right. It's, uh, the whole idea of like, you have to be a successful artist and make money off of your art is not, I don't think it's, I think that's destructive because it forces you to do something commercial. Right. And it's also very rare. I mean, e- yeah. even in, with people who are willing to, uh, settle out completely it's very you know success is is really hard to come by for for any kind of artist um and when you have somebody who not only gets attention for the work that they care about but has the ability to make money to support the stuff they care about using their art you know if he can do these commercial projects that he doesn't give a shit about but take that money and use it to fund the things that he does care about um that's a a really rare position to be in too yeah it it like, I don't think anybody faults him for taking advantage of that. And also, you know, another person who had this very queer sensibility was, uh, you know, a lot of there, there was a lot of provocation in what he did, not just about queer stuff, but just, you know, ma- making something like Empire where, um, yeah. you know, it, it isn't like he's making that thinking the entire world is going to look at this and everyone is going to agree that this is a masterpiece. He knows that there are going to be people who are like, what the fuck is this shit? (laughs) But that's part of it as well is like challenging people with things that are intentionally divisive. Uh, So yeah, all of those elements coming into it too, that he, you know, again, a person with a busy brain, somebody who had a lot going on and um, had grand plans for how he wanted to share all of that with the world. Yeah. And, you know, with something like Empire or Sleep or, you know, a lot of his other earlier films, you know, he was dealing with time, obviously, and thinking of film in a way that people don't really think about still, um, you know, that that it is you're watching something, your time is passing as you're watching it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, 
showing the film run out and not editing it and, and things like that. Just taking the pure art form and mm-hmm. just doing something with it is some was something, you know, that nobody had done before, really. Right, right. And I guess because I don't know if it was that pop art um, was seen to be something that was maybe more accessible or part of like a part of popular culture writ, writ large that the expectation is that his movies would be accessible. But uh-huh. I don't think you would ever have that pressure on any other artist who made a film that is art. It's not a narrative film that you're meant to sit and, you know, you know, that you're going to find on Netflix and watch with popcorn. It's yeah. like, it's, uh, I, I don't know that the expectation was there that everyone would want to sit and watch the entirety of Empire in one go or, you know, have repeated viewings like you would with another film. It's a different thing. And it's a piece of, it's a piece of art um, in, a, in a separate way. It's not necessarily like cinema, um, you know, it doesn't have the same, narrative structure, three acts, uh, even dialogue, you know, all of those things are not part of it. And that's intentional. It's, it's something else. Yeah. And it's also an experience too. I mean, you have to watch it. And each time you watch it, it's in a different, if it's a, it's a different experience, like with Chelsea girls, I mean, where physically it's, you know, two reels and, you know, his intention was that each time that you split it, you change the order of the reels. So it's never the same movie each time you watch it. Mm-hmm. And you also play with the sound. You turn the sound up for one reel, turn it down for the other. Like, you you know, so it's always different. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that his movies, you actually have to see them in a theater in order to get the experience up from them. Right. You have to sit in a theater for eight hours watching Empire in order to get the full experience of what it is. Right, right. Um, and that's why, you know, they don't release them on demand or on video or anything like that you have Mm -hmm. to watch them yeah at a museum or a theater right in the same way that you know someone like matthew barney's work um you Uh know it's again a a gallery piece a museum piece something that's meant to be experienced in public on a a big screen Mm -hmm. and you know something that you in some ways i think it, it forces people to engage with it in the way that it was intended to be engaged with instead of, you know, sitting at home and watching Netflix and being able to scroll through your phone while you're doing it or yeah, whatever. Unfortunate that... double speed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh God. The, the bane of uh, every filmmaker's existence. I can't believe that that's even something that was considered, but what can you do? People don't have any attention spans anymore. Uh, I feel good. I feel very good. Do you have uh, any Last thoughts about any of those three people? It's interesting because I'm, I mean, I'm going up to Maine for the holidays, so mm. I've been thinking a lot about growing up there and uh, you know all the stuff that happened. So yeah. it is, you know, it, you have to find the people that inspire you and just sort of try to become like them, I guess. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think it must be a very different thing to grow up in a small town now than yeah. it was before the internet was available because now it's like even if you feel isolated and you feel like there's nobody around you in your immediate vicinity who inspires you or who, you know, uh, feels like they're part of your uh, community you can find those people online. You can at least see evidence that those people exist in the world. And, you know, even if 
high school is uh, really terrible for you. You can uh, mark on your calendar the day you graduate and know that you can get the fuck out of there um, and have a really clear vision of what that means. And I, I think uh, that's that's a huge, huge change. Yeah, that, that was I mean, that was something that sort of got me through uh, because, you know, growing up in Maine and being so isolated, I you know, would would read The Village Voice, I, you know, I, I would read Stephen King's books and I would just think, you know, I, I eventually I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to escape. I'm going to get to New York. Um, and this, you know, especially in the early 80s, you know, when AIDS hit and like Stephen King wrote about in, in It, Charlie Howard was somebody that I didn't know, but I saw walking around town. And so, you know, he was beaten up and thrown off a bridge and killed by people that I didn't go to high school with, but I also knew them and I was the same age as them. So it really felt like everything was, you know, that I was either going to, you know, be beaten up and killed for who I was, or I was going to die of AIDS. So I needed to get out and do something. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really an inspiration to get out of Bangor. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I guess, you know, it, growing up before the internet existed didn't mean that you didn't have awareness of what the outside world had to offer. It didn't mean that you didn't weren't able to dream about a life in a different place. But I think the thing that was different is access to other people who you could communicate with, who were living in other places, who could, you know, you could plan that life a little bit more um but yeah it's still i think having those scary growing up experiences i think you know all queer people can relate in in some way to feeling that isolation regardless of where they grew up um but especially in a small town especially when there have been homophobic hate crimes and especially growing Mm. up in the shadow of the aids crisis yeah it's a it's a lot to uh to cope with. And, um, it makes sense that you would want to escape from that. <sighs> um, and on that happy note, <laughs> uh, I feel very good. Do you, uh, um, if people want to find out what you've got coming up, um, and check out your films and all of that, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, you can find me on Instagram, Todd Vero, uh, or I have a website called Bangor Films. Great. has all my movies on it, and you can just Google me or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much. This was so much fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. What a lovely chat with a lovely man, eh? Thanks again to Todd for speaking with me. Be sure to check out all of his films. Okay, it's time for your recommendations. Yay! Firstly, Katranada put out a new album. He's a DJ and producer who makes amazing music, and this is no exception. He's collaborated with some incredible people for this album, like Kaliuchis and Estelle and Pharrell Williams. It's really smooth and chill, and it's just a perfect winter soundtrack, so check that out. I also saw Uncut Gems, which is the new Softy Brothers film starring Adam Sandler in a dramatic role. I really liked it. There's a little too much focus on sports and gambling for me because I don't give a shit about either of those things, but I still enjoyed it. And Adina Menzel, Adele Dazim herself, is in it, and she's great. As are Kevin Garnett, Seriously, like, he's a basketball player playing a fictionalized version of himself, but he's actually incredible. And Julia Fox in her first film role, which is crazy because she's so good. 
And I think that's a wrap, friends. Remember, I've still got this little GoFundMe going until the end of the year. If you like the show and you want to support it and help it grow, please consider donating as much as you can, even if it's $5. Seriously, everything helps. Thank you in advance. Also, please follow me on social media if you haven't already, at Spark Parade, and sign up for the mailing list so you can get my cute little emails in the new year. You can donate and subscribe and sign up to the mailing list all on the website or on social media. You have so many options. Other than that, enjoy the rest of your year, have a lovely festive season, and I'll be back with more episodes for you in January. Be good, take care of yourselves, Until next time, bye. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.